Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Well, many thanks for joining us on the Journal of Biophilic Design today. Um, one of the brilliant articles that's written in our cities issue of the Journal of Biophilic Design, which is out now, um, was written by Dr. Wei Yang. You can purchase a copy directly from our website, journalofbiophilicdesign.com, or on Amazon as well. The links are on the spiel that goes with this podcast. Dr. Wang is an internationally renowned town planner, and she's also an urban designer and champions a place-based whole systems approach to tackle the grand challenges of our time. And we're really happy uh, that she's joining us on the podcast today. Dr. Wang was president of the Royal Town Planning Institute um, and is an influential thought leader and powerful advocate for climate action, nature-based solutions, health and well-being and social equality. She was also named Net Zero Hero by Digital Leaders in 2022, and this is very exciting, is going to become the first female chair of the Construction Industry Council. So go, girl. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. Um, I'm really thrilled to have you here. I really am. Um, people who are listening to this podcast uh, know your name, um, which is amazing. I know your work as well and, and know your um, advocacy as, too. So um, I would love to know a little bit about your journey. Um, what got you into town planning? You know, what's what was kind of your inspiration? Yes, thank you. Uh, it's my great, great pleasure to talk with you today as well. Yes, um, it's my uh, my journey was quite interesting because um, when I was uh, in high school, I was uh, I wanted to be a botanist or archaeologist, <laughs> but uh, my mother wanted me to be an architect. So uh, I applied um, uh, for a degree in architectural school, and then I see the subject. Uh, there's one subject called town planning. I think, wow, that sounds very interesting because I like planning things. So yeah, so I applied <laughs> to to be a town planner, although without knowing what that meant, and then. Now I look back, I couldn't think of any other profession suits me better. So I was really lucky <laughs> with that. So yeah, so about my journey, I was trained in uh, in China, uh, in Xi'an, um, for my uh, first degree. Um, so I was trained initially as an architect. So the first three years, um, we were taught about how to design buildings from small to large. And then uh, the final years, we will learn about uh, urban design and the mass planning and the planning and about historical environment and also natural environment transportation. So it's a quite a comprehensive um, education. And then I came to the UK in 1999 to study my master's uh, and also PhD afterwards um, in Sheffield University. So after that, um, I uh, went to Milton Kings. I worked seven years as an urban designer um, for some very large scale mass plans in the UK for seven years. And because I I lived in Milton Kings and it's a very good place for town planners because you see a brand new city and how it works and then how it didn't work. So you <laughs> actually you start to think about if I do design something like that, what I should do. So yeah, I think it's a fantastic place for a town planner to be. So from there, uh, I start to realize um, the unlocked potentials of town planning because the uh, new, because Milton Kings was the last new towns in the UK. And then the new towns program was very much inspired by the Garden City movement. So I start from new towns to trace back to the principles of Garden Cities and then to have some deep research about uh, Garden Cities. 
and I was fascinated by the concept of garden cities because I think the approach taken by the garden cities are still so relevant to the challenges we want to tackle today. And then, of course, it was designed a century ago. But I think if we could adapt some fundamental principles and then relate that to the 21st century context in terms of the new challenges and also um, the new technology, we could really create a new model. So, so uh, in 2011, I decided to set up my own company, uh, We Are the Partners, to focus on the 21st century garden city uh, model. So I invented this 21st century garden city model and used that as an integrated mass planning approach uh, for my firm. And then from there, uh, we were one of the finalists of the Wolfson's Economics Prize in 2014. Uh, on garden cities. And also we use that approach to do some very large scale mass plans, very much focus on urban rural integrated development in China and some other countries. And we were instrumental uh, in uh, helping the uh, informing the Chinese national spatial planning reform on thinking about a much more holistic and ecologically focused approach to the overall uh, environment. So yeah, so from there, and I, I just thought, uh, I strongly felt the planning profession need to be modernized. So I decided to put myself forward as the president of the Royal Town Planning Institute. So I was elected and I wrote a manifesto. And then from there, uh, in my manifesto, I said, we need to focus on the modernization of the planning profession. And one of the key thing is, is digitalization. So I set up a digital task force for planning with Professor Michael Betty. So, so we are doing quite a lot on that. And then, yeah, I'm also very keen from, because through my whole career, I was very interested into interdisciplinary collaboration and then thinking research. And I'm very keen to uh, foster research into practice. So, so I, I felt um, we should do more between different professionals and different professional bodies. Yeah, so I was kind of putting myself forward again <laughs> to be the chair of the Construction Industry Council. So this is where I am. It's, it's fantastic. Um, I love that. Like you say, you wanted to make a change. So actually you stepped up to the plate and said, do you know what? Let me have a go and I and doing it better. Um, actually, Professor Michael Batty has written in the same magazine, same um, issue as as you. So, um, and listeners, if you want to find out a little bit more about that too, please do buy the buy the buy the journal. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, a really a really amazing way what you've done. Um, I do want to ask you before we are going to the other questions. Um, can you kind of explain what a what a garden city to you is? What your sort of twenty first century kind of garden city kind of vision is to kind of give people an, like an overview of it please yes um there are a lot of misunderstanding uh, about the garden cities because quite often people perceive garden cities are places with lots of trees of course that's one of the characters of garden cities but essentially a uh, garden city is a social economic model so it's focused very much on the long term uh, of the uh, community building and also using the land value capture to really enable that to happen, to say, um, yes, yeah, through because just very um, simple. So a new development when it started, um, so start from scratch, and then the land would worth not very very much, but through development the land value will increase significantly. 
but rather than the developer capture only this land value increase. So if that val land value can be catch captured for the community purpose through different mechanism, and then through the years, the income generated through land value increase can benefit to the community. And that would really help to um, enhance uh, many social economic uh, kind of support uh, to the community. And also related to the 21st century, uh, because 21st century, we have um, more challenges, much more severe challenges like climate change, biodiversity decline, and also aging population. Uh, so I, I believe having this land value capture can help us to think about community uh, welfare uh, in a much more comprehensive way, uh, way related to the local needs. Because sometimes if you think about uh, social welfare from the state, perspective uh, can be very high um, kind of a top-down approach. So may may not be necessarily need what uh, the community requires. So if we do have a local approach and we can really feed that with the uh, community's need. And also 21st century, we have so many um, advanced technologies which can be used to enhance the convenience of our community. Because I, I believe we should benefit from community, uh, should benefit from technology but not necessarily uh, driven by technology. Technology is, is serving people for people's need. So I think that's a key thing I uh, want to focus uh, in the 21st century garden city. So it's a, a people-centric approach about community, about the environment. That's wonderful. Um, I think like like you say, I think having it having things more locally based, they're kind of more autonomy, more autonomous people understanding what needs are as well because mm. obviously it changes where you are it's like in every family isn't it i always think of communities yes. like families um where we live here the the community is very strong um which is lovely um but people look out for each other and there's different needs and even even different parts of this town so um yeah i think by having like a massive overview massive umbrella thing for the whole country for the whole nation for the whole world is not going to work i mean we need an overriding um kind of policy maybe um what we what we well, like the targets the net zero targets and things like that but actually in, in order to be able to achieve that and also to help our citizens flourish um i completely with you on that one to have it have it localized um i've just i've got to ask you what's your biggest frustration when it comes to a sort of town and urban planning? I mean, this is a massive question. <laughs> so answer this as you will. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I yeah, I, I was reminded about this every day. Yes, I, I think the frustration uh, really come from the, um, the misunderstanding of planning again, because it's actually very relevant to what I said about there are lots of misunderstanding about garden cities, because garden city um, principles were almost like the foundation of the uh, modern town planning profession. So I, I said it's very much about compassion and selflessness. So it's really about serving community rather than making benefit for certain small groups. So my frustration now, uh, I believe is the frustration of the general profession um, is the um, kind of uh, lack of understanding about the potentials of, of spatial planning. Um, and also quite often people perceive planning as uh, administrative and also bureaucratic exercise or serving uh, developers. But actually this is not what planning is about. So planning, I, I think is a, a multidisciplinary um, discipline. So cutting across between social, environmental and the behavior sciences. So it's an applied science discipline. So it's a, a part of science and also it's art. 
So you really have to man manage between scientific evidence with people's need. So it's, I think it's a pure, it's a very highly sophisticated profession, but because it's so sophisticated and because it's cutting across so many different disciplines, and it's, it's um, people uh, found difficult to understand or perceive what it's all about. Yeah, um, I suppose where you say is collaboration is where it comes in, isn't it? Mm. Bringing all the heads together. And um, you mentioned um, compassion and selflessness. And, and obviously, I know you're really um, passionate about the environment and obviously biophilic design. It obviously ticks all those boxes. Um, in the article that you wrote for our city's edition of the Journal of Biophilic Design, which is out now, readers, um, the town, town planners um, should be doctors for Mother Earth. Um, I thought that was beautiful when I read that. I had to read it six times. I love that. <laughs> town, plan town planners should be doctors for Mother Earth. And you also mentioned about them being artists, you know, having an art side of things as well. Um, so town planners as doctors for Mother Earth, what does that mean in real terms? You know, what, what mindset should they be adopting and, and what should they be considering? Yes, I think if you think about the scope of the profession, I believe the fundamental objective of the profession is to create a balanced system for people, nature and society to coexist in harmony. Because as we said, uh, the profession is so sophisticated and then we have to deal with so many different things and different stakeholders. But sometimes when you think about a complex issue, it's better to think about from some very simple approach. I think if really we need to think about actually who who matters or what matters in planning. So I think only three key things matters is people, nature, and the society. So if we get this balance right, and then this is what we ultimately want to achieve, this is this harmony for these uh, three key elements. And then so, from there, you can get our priority right. So uh, everything have to start from nature because we are part of nature and then without nature, we cannot survive. So I think a fundamental issue is about our survival. And then, so I think it's, it's about our mindset change because quite often as human beings, we are very selfish. We're just taken from nature without giving back to nature. So that really caused all these problems we have now. So I think why I say, um, I see planners as doctors, because I think we are doctors for our mother earth. So if we see our, say, our mother earth, our planet as a human body, I think it's easy to, to perceive that way. So if we imagine our mother earth as our birth mother and a human being, then soils are her muscles and river systems are her blood vessels, woodlands are her hair. And then we think our cities towns and the villages are the organs in her body. So everything is part of a holistic, integrated and interconnected ecosystem. So from that way, you will see actually, that's why we have to bring the beauty of nature and bring wildlife corridors into city because they, are, they have to be connected. At the moment, quite often we treat cities, especially large cities as almost like a cancer because they're just like a block, concrete block. But that's why they have so such, such a lot of trouble. We, so as human beings, we live in cities. Quite often, we have mental health issues, and we are not connecting man, both mental and physical health issues. So if we do bring nature into our cities, towns, and villages, and then we can treat the whole environment in a totally different way, and then the role of planners uh, would be very different. The approach we take will be very different. Yeah, really, really, um, really good. Um, do you have uh, 
an example of where town planners have really adopted that Mother Earth principle? Yes, uh, yes. So go back to uh, the garden cities. So the first garden city, um, that was garden city, I think used that approach. So now after over 100 years, the city is thriving um, and economically as well. And also it sits perfectly in a natural environment. And also one thing about is this um, connectivity to the uh, local agricultural uh, land. So, so actually, the the garden name of Garden City is not because the gardens, uh, in in say in our household, um, a garden actually means the um, the agricultural belt around the cities. So actually, the city sits in this garden kind of agricultural rural context. I think that's where the name came from. And so, 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 so at the moment, that's very relevant. So relates to local food production because we know. Uh, importing food will cause enormous amount of carbon emission and the footprint. So, for example, local food production uh, is a very good approach, and also uh, workable neighborhoods. Because um, I think at the moment there's a concept called fifteen uh, minutes uh, workable neighborhood, fifteen minutes neighborhood. So I believe that started from garden cities because garden cities was all about workability. So you can walk to your uh, from your house to to your uh, your your work. Uh, on a daily basis and also also about uh, because so uh, garden city is not one city so it's not a city in isolation it's actually it's a social uh, network so it's a, so when howard he drew his diagram he called social cities so it's like a several several garden cities that are connected by a public transit and then through public trans uh, this rapid public transport system they are connected to larger cities. So it's like a network of cities. But that's again, very relevant to what we want to um, encourage today with um, public transport. So so I think that's a, a good example. And also uh, in terms of the land and value capture. So um, because the whole uh, Latchworth Garden City, apart from the private homes, uh, the only other uh, commercial uh, estate and also the parklands and also the surrounding um, agricultural land belongs to uh, the uh, Heritage uh, Trust. So each year they can generate a good income. And then if we reduce that to the expense and everything else, they can still have 7 million pounds surplus. And then these 7 million pounds are used for local communities need and the reinvestment into uh, the, um, say, uh, refurbishment of uh, commercial properties and also upgrading uh, or um, improving the public realm in the area. So as you can see, actually this model really works successfully. So another good example is Milton Keynes because Milton Keynes used a lot of uh, garden city principles, but to a larger uh, scale. So the Milton Keynes considered multifunctionality in terms of the green space. So the green space in Milton Keynes are not only uh, for ledger purposes, but also is for uh, flood attenuation and also for wildlife corridors. I think that's a great approach to think about how we can use uh, very limited land to achieve multifunction. Um, and also, Milton Kings used the land value capture model as well. So uh, there was a trust called the Parks Trust was created to help look after the green spaces uh, in Milton Kings. So although Milton Kings has um, a higher percentage of green space, is about a quarter of the land uh, in the city, but because they have this land value capture model, so uh, each year uh, the, the parks trust they generate income from local 
centers, the commercial um, kind of premises there, and also some other um, income. So they can use this income to look after the green space um, professionally. That's why Minter Kings is such a lavish uh, city. So I think all this really shows how we can uh, take a long-term integrated approach when we consider mass planning and it relates to uh, the city or the towns or villages to a wider ecological context. I think it's a great idea that um, you say there's, you know, the, the land value. Um, so how, you know, how you can use that, those green spaces to actually generate income, which will then benefit the community. So um, I'm actually just going to ask you now, um, obviously, what's the impact it's been on the people and um, and also on the environment? Um, it's it's really refreshing to hear, though, that there's there's kind of this the value approach because um, you know it's it's very easy to talk about the well being and it's it's all that sort of which we all know about now, which is great. But um, I'm also now um, as, as more and more debates are happening, it's like yeah, it's great talking about it, but how do I swing that if I'm trying to do this make a difference in a town or in a city? to the people that are going to sign it off basically so if you know like you just said there there is this there's there are two examples there there's Letchworth and there's Milton Keynes and there are many others but this model of actually using the land to generate funds which self you know self heal or mm -hmm. self you know self protect yeah. the the buildings and then um, in the um, the garden spaces and then also the communities um so, so yeah. If we can maybe move on then to the to how it affects the people, you know, the people who are actually using it. Do we have any like um, evidence of that, or or what's been your kind of feedback on on that and the environment that great garden cities have? Yes, I think the um, because because um, I think um, green space or accessibility to green space will change will affect our behavior, and I think as you said, um, will affect our physical and mental uh, well being. I think um, if we see from the other way, because it's because sometimes we take things for granted. So if you live in a nicer environment and then yeah, green space on your doorstep, so you just do that and then and, and then I I don't and another thing is um, because we do have some expensive uh, neighborhood and then we are normally refer as leafy neighborhood. Yeah. So they are normally uh, quite expensive areas. So people lo love them. But I think green space is so important to everyone. And mm -hmm. that's why say, the pioneers like Ogilvia Hill, she helped to protect the green spaces in London because she argues we have to really provide this on people's doorstep. Otherwise, you cannot expect people, especially uh, people from disadvantaged background, they have to pay transport to go to enjoy this green space. It should be accessible to everyone. I think that's a fundamental principle we should carry on. Uh, in town planning, uh, and also there is evidence to show actually um, children they develop mental health issues in early stage of our life. At the moment, there is a research shows uh, seventy four percent of the children in England they play outside for less than one hour per day. That's um, that's horrendous because uh, the UN's guidance for prisoners is to have exercise at least one hour per day. So. So children, they, they yeah, they, they, their their freedom is less than prisoners. So we really have to encourage them to to enjoy nature because if we want our future generations look after our nature, and then if they don't understand nature and they don't appreciate that, how on earth they can protect it? So I think that's fundamental. And also, as I said, long term um, nature or accessibility to outdoor space will change our behavior. 
And it's kind of like um, chicken and egg issue. There's a research from Sheffield, uh, from a professor uh, in Sheffield University, shows um, in four generations time, our ability as children to wander around has reduced significantly. So for the great grandfather, uh, um, George, when he was um, seven or eight, he was allowed to walk six miles to go fishing by himself. But after the 100 years, his great grandchild Ed, he can only his, he was only allowed to walk within 300 yards, not to the end of his street because perceived was not to be very safe if he goes further without uh, his without an adult. But it's so important for ch for children to be able to play independently without um without adults without their parents because that could help you to to explore the nature by yourself and also to be more independent. And then, so I think that's so important. When I was a child, I always played with my my brother only. My parents was never there. <laughs> so we do enjoy something uh, quite uh, adventurous, uh, quite dangerous, but it's really great. So I think we need to encourage children to take some kind of manageable risk. And then actually through learning through risks, you, you can really have a much more a better judgment about what you should do as an adult or as a children. So I think all these are essential part of our kind of mental health development. So yeah, so I think we have to really to um, provide adequate space to encourage that in a, with a safer, uh, relatively uh, in a relatively safer environment. Absolutely, and if you think about it, if there's more children playing, there'll be more people out there. There'll be more people looking out for each other as well. Mm -hmm. So it would actually create mm -hmm. a safer space. Um, yes. And the whole equity um, messaging as well is actually to encourage people to go and use it as well. Because some people also feel if they've never used it, how do I, how do I use it? How do I access it? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, like, like you, I mean, I, I used to go and play, we'd go and play in the woods. I'd go, you know, play in the gardens. My mum and dad would like often, yeah, I'm an only child. So it was like, it was me and my dog or, but they were always close. They were nearby, but I went, was allowed to go off and explore on my own and, and mm. always came back. But I had that beauty, you know, that, that, um, uh, yeah, I had that gift, I suppose. I think that's the word mm. I'm going to use. I had that gift of being able to fall over logs and, and stuff and play in leaves and, and, and just look and, mm. and sit on the floor as well and look at the little bugs and stuff. And I think that's yes, what I think. Yeah, yes, about yes. The garden garden cities is that you can bring that right to someone's doorstep. You know, yes, you don't have to go I know. Yeah, yes, yes. Um, and also the environmental messaging as well. It's obviously it improves biodiversity, doesn't it? And um, you know, it helps reduce heat islands, and you know, helps runoff, helps increases the porosity of of earth and cities, and yeah, it's just there's so many win wins, isn't there? When we bring biophilic design into um into cities, which is is the garden city messaging in effect isn't it really so um what do you think are the greatest barriers and um, people are going to be listening to this going probably got a gazillion things going well I've tried to do this and I've tried to bring in a plant and I've tried to bring in a pocket park and I've tried to and I've tried for you what do you think are the greatest barriers um to how we can you know plan our cities and towns better are there sort of common challenges that town planners face um when they're trying to do the right thing for for people and planets yes I think the, the common challenge is the the uh, professional and the departmental silos. Yeah. So because we have quite no, so from say top down, um, we have different departments and also we have different professions. So everybody try to uh, resolve their own issue without really effective communication or data sharing. 
So if we tackle one issue just from one side, actually you may miss opportunity. Actually you may do something, um, maybe um, have bad consequence for longer term. I always use an example. So example, if uh, there's a, a street, um, a bit of high street, I have traffic jams every morning because there was a primary school next door. And then, so if you are, you were asked to, to find out uh, what is the solution, and then the easy solution will be just a, a open a big car park. So all the parents, they can just park their cars without blocking the street. But there's another solution could be, why don't we look why, what caused the, uh, the traffic jam? And then to see actually whether we can create a much more friendly pedestrian environment. So children, they can be walked to school without need to drive. And then that would really resolve many different other issues. So it's really about how you answer the, ask the question and how you try to find a much more integrated uh, solution to think about many other issues. It's really about waiting and judgment and also trade-offs. So I think this is why um, I believe planning profession is so important because it's not about tackling one issue, it's a place-based approach. So we could really consider, especially from uh, the people's and the environment's perspective about what is the best solution and working with different professionals to find that best solution. Mm. So that's the best way to address it, really, then, isn't it? Is mm. Yeah, so it's a multidisciplinary approach. So so that's um so that's why I think um the um so the, the frustration is this silo approach. And then secondly is really um the uh, the skill set we should have uh within the planning profession. I believe we should have uh, leadership and facilitation skills. So for you to be able to work with all the different other professions, you have to understand all the principles so so we can really share the same language do you think that might come from like universities and where people are training to be town planners do you think i mean you know um the next generation or the people who are training i say next generation i don't mean that in an age group i just literally mean people who might be retraining um into mm -hmm. planning or cross you know cross from a, a discipline into into town planning do you feel like that should be coming from those academic institutions i think it's should come both ways um of course should come within the planning profession itself uh, and um, and also of course education institute play the plays uh play a key role in that example i know there are a lot of um say universities or education institutes they already taken they are already taken this approach for example like ucl like mm -hmm. um there was a new school called uh, university called uh, london uh, school uh, interdisciplinary school um, yeah, so they all try to take that approach. I think that's fantastic. Uh, and also, it's really about how we want to use these skills and how we want to encourage these skills. So, so yeah, I think the the key drive needs to come from within the profession itself. Yeah. There's a, a fundamental change. I think it is part of the key things I argued and, and in my argument in terms of how or how or why uh, planning profession need to be modernized absolutely well i think i mean you've you've made such an impact already way i mean really you have um you know people talk about you and then you're a, a real leader in that space and you're very you know you're outspoken and strong 
and you know people listen to what you're saying and I, I really hope that people listening to the podcast will go off and I'll put links on the on the podcast on the spiel that goes with the podcast but we'll follow follow up on on your story and and the your, you know your practice and your, your research papers and things that you've written as well um um and also people hope I encourage people to buy the city's edition of the journal of biophilic design which has ways article in it I've said that six times I think in this podcast so hopefully somebody might buy it um how do you feel um nature affects us as a human so this is just I'm just bringing this back as like as a very personal thing um I mean what sort of positive impact does it have on us when we're surrounded by a natural habitat and you can answer that personally as well so yeah, yeah it's I just feel it brings you energy because, uh, because every day you see something growing and then from such a small seed, some some such, such a vulnerable um, kind of small shoots and then become a big tree. I think just uh, there's nothing more kind of fascinating or fantastic or magical than, than the nature, the power of nature. So we all have that power. I think we just need to be more connected to nature to explore our own power. Mm that's really nice um i'm going to ask you the final question in a, in a second uh, the, the one i ask everybody which is my my favorite part of the podcast as well um is there anything else you would like to add before i get to that point uh, no i i just, I just want to one maybe add one thing because i think as you mentioned i'm going to be the first chair of a construction industry council but i, I think actually um so when i uh research on the history of uh, garden cities and also the history of many, say, uh, social, environmental, and behavioral science, or generally about science and technology. Quite often, uh, the pioneers, they, are, uh, they were men. But I think there is no age and gender difference in our spirit, no race difference in our soul. So as long as we believe ourselves, we can all make a lasting difference. So I think as girls, as uh, people from any where, I think if we believe something, I think we just work on it. I think we can all achieve something collectively. That's beautiful. That's really lovely. So, yeah, final question then. If you could paint the world, and I'm really interested to hear what you say about this. If you could paint the world with a magic brush of biophilia, what would it look like? Yes, I would like it to be a place where humans coexist in harmonious nature. So we do have uh, abundant of greeneries and also plants and trees of all shapes and sizes thriving in every corner of our earth and also wildlife and live in harmony with people so now first let's say actually I, I'm, I'm your uh, master I am controlling you actually we're all just enjoying the world together thank you for listening to the journal of biophilic design podcast